the beginning of anything is, is making a promise that you can deliver against. Business requires you to create value, right? And to be able to market that value to people who will find that value meaningful to them. So some of the ways you create trust is by knowing the value you create and then authentically representing that value. No puffery, no exaggeration in your marketing, no effort to try to attract people who shouldn't be buying your product into the web of profitability. Uh, Once you know who you are, know who's the right person to get it, communicate it fairly, you are well on the road to trust, particularly if you can deliver it as promised. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, in a business landscape that's changing rapidly, it's no secret that the companies staying ahead of the curve are those that are getting better and faster at reinventing themselves. Spotting opportunities, responding to competition, or more frequently, and as I'm hearing on this podcast, more and more frequently, even becoming their own competition. But what, and this is a question I'm asking a lot at the moment, what really sits in the DNA of a company that can reinvent an entire category? or a business that completely reinvents itself, or an individual that sparks the momentum that reinvents an entire conversation. Is it the same thing, just in different formats? Or when you decode it, is it something completely different? Now, some might say it's being really clear about who your target audience is and what they want. And others, including the prime example that we're going to be looking at today, would probably just agree with the immortal words of Henry Ford when he said, If I had asked them what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. My guest today is Joseph Michelli. He is a psychologist turned best-selling author who has dedicated his career to decoding how category reinventors such as Starbucks, Zappos, and now Airbnb have changed the game. In his latest book, The Airbnb Way, Michelli and his team took an unprecedented inside look at the influence of one of the largest disruption stories of our time. And certainly probably one of the most profitable disruption stories of our time when we think about the amount of companies out there that are disrupting at the moment whose bottom line is less than healthy. Now to give you some perspective on that, Airbnb has over 4 million listings in 220 countries, which is higher than the top five major hotel brands combined. In 2016, four years ago, in New York City alone, the estimated hotel revenue lost to Airbnb was totaled at 365 million. Now, four years later, there is only one direction that that number would have gone in. The research of Joseph and his team involved interviewing hundreds of Airbnb hosts and guests over 11 countries. Not a bad job if you can get it. And what they found was that the same five words just kept playing on repeat in various formats. And they were these, the power of belonging, trust, hospitality, empowerment, and community. So in today's podcast, we are going to take a deep dive into those five words and quite a few more. The ground we covered, including 
what it takes to truly reinvent an industry or product. And is it what we think it might be or is it something completely different? Designing for trust. Now, there is no business model more dependent on trust than staying in a total stranger's house sometimes when they're actually there with you, just in a different room. How do you do that? How do you get the general population's mind around that so that they would pay for an experience like that? I mean, if you really sit and think about it, it's a crazy idea. So how do you design for trust? The power and influence of of designing and telling your story, taking ownership of your story, actually designing it and telling it consciously. The noble art of hosting, that was probably one of the biggest ones for me, and we'll get into that more. The line between giving people options and giving them too much choice, which is one I know a lot of CEOs are, are looking at quite hard right now. Now, if you're working hard to create something that cuts through business as usual, then I'm telling you this conversation is the one for you. So if you're anything like me and this year is kicked off with a commitment to kick the caffeine, I give myself two weeks and one day, pour yourself a herbal tea. Get out your notepad and pen and enjoy this incredible conversation with Joseph Machetta. Welcome to the podcast, Joseph Michelli. Such an honor to be with you, Julie. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. We've been kind of in and out of each other's worlds for, for years now, and it's such a pleasure to have an hour with you just to deep dive into some of the things you've been thinking about recently. The feeling's mutual. Believe, believe me. Thank you. Um, I want to I kick off with a different question than I would usually kick off with, just because you've dedicated a career pretty much to investigating world-class companies, investigating world-class ideas and translating them and putting all the pieces together. What's, what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? So I was at a conference just about a weekend ago and I was listening to a guy who, who basically claims he positions consultants and thought leaders so that they can increase fees by a couple of thousand percent. And uh, so I was skeptical of people like that. But he had a few really interesting concepts that that grabbed me, one of which is to really start thinking about some of the ideas that you envy the most, you know, where you where you read it and you go, wow, that was something I thought of, or why didn't I think of that? Or, you know, dang, uh, you know, dang them for coming up with that. Um, And then realizing that while that attracted you, there must have been some real energy around it. And probably whatever that idea is, is just part of the lane. Right. And that if you know a lot of it such that you envy it, you probably could teach a lot of people about that concept. So for me, Simon Sinek's, you know, uh, the the start with a why kind of thing is one of those places where I go, wow, I wish I'd been the guy who thought of that. Right. But. But a lot of people still have a lot to learn about starting with the why beyond what Simon's done. And so how do I unpack what people need to know with different exercises, different examples and different stories so that I can still touch on that thing that resonated so much with me that it provoked an extreme emotion? How do I build off of it so that I can help others uh, grow in that space? Because, you know, he hasn't he hasn't consumed all the oxygen in that space yet. I think that that's something that happens frequently where people assume people look at the knowledge that they have or the experience that they have or the passions and they go, well, that's just, that's simple information. 
And the reason it's simple is because you've been doing it for years and years and years and distilled it down into this beautiful framework in your head. But for the majority of people, that's not a simple concept. That's not a simple conclusion. And there's plenty of oxygen there for multiple people to be exploring that and offering it out there. And I really think almost everything has been thought of in some way. It is about our ability to package it in an accessible way to the world. And I loved your word kind of simplifying. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so envious of us, you know, Simon Sinek is he was so clean and he's so identified with this concept because of its simplicity. Right. And I think sometimes smart people overcomplicate not only do they not value what they know which is what your point is right like they don't even appreciate how much they know and what value there but when they start spewing it out to the universe they overcomplicate it and they have the seven principles of and even you know if you take a take someone like uh you know the seven habits of highly effective people there's really only two habits that most people remember it's you know sh- sharpen the saw and start with the end in mind so i think sometimes we overcomplicate things and or we assume it's already been done and there's no there there and we also associate um we associate simplicity with easy you know that's the it's simple therefore it's the easy path therefore it has no value and you know one of the things that that i found myself over the past 10 to 20 years saying to a lot of people is you know simplicity is the end goal you have to wade through complexity for years to get to simplicity, like simplicity is the gold. It's not easy, nor is it, nor does it have no value. Simplicity to make something simple is what consultants um, and companies get paid millions of dollars for. Yeah, it, it, I think it's you know that it. I think it was Pascal who once was you know quoted as saying, "If I'd had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter." Um, and exactly. I think that's truly the world we live in. Like, if I really had the time to make it accessible to you. I would simplify it, uh, but unfortunately, I just spew out uh, complications. And, and I don't think that's true of everyone, but I think there's great value in taking another cut at it uh, for accessibility. Well, let's, I'm going to use that as a segue into you know, the, the crux of what we're here to talk about today, which is the Airbnb way. And you know, part of what you do, which is why I so value what you do, is you translate you take something that seems complex and seems multifaceted and impossible to replicate and you translate it in a simple way so that there's a blueprint for other people to follow. And one of the first things I thought about when I approached this conversation with you, I was thinking about trust because at, you know, I had this brilliant story. It was an interview with um, Brian Chesky, one of the founders of Airbnb. And he was talking about how he, one of the very first venture capital firms they went to see, and they explained the concept of Airbnb. And instead of getting money, they, the, the guy involved sat them down and gave them a lecture on the, the fact that, you know, you are going to be complicit in somebody's murder with this, with this business model. You need to stop and decease, go do something else. This is dangerous. And so they've, They've gone from there and they've created this high trust model out of almost nothing, it seems like. We trust Airbnb when really, technically, we shouldn't. You're talking about a stranger's home here. Now, you have said that Airbnb designs for trust. And I I really wanted to know, what do you mean by that? Can you break that down for me? Absolutely. Can I respond in part to uh, someone's murder? Um, October 31st. 
2019, 9 p.m., 100 people at a Halloween party that was an Airbnb rental. Most of the guests were not listed as guests. They were invited by the person who rented the space. And it turns out at the end of the night, there are four men in their 20s killed. Um, and a 19-year-old woman dies thereafter on November 1st from injuries sustained in the shooting. So I, I think it's fascinating that the insight was there that this they could be complicit to a murder. And, uh, you know, many people are saying, is Airbnb responsible or not? But it's this all happens after a $38 billion valuation in a market after an 11-year run of a business that should have never even gotten started under that assessment. So we, I think we can talk about you know, the, the issues of trust and it can be more stark than the outcome of those lives in Orinda, California. But I think trust is inherent in every single business relationship, maybe more inherent when you're renting someone's space um, and these are strangers renting to strangers. But every relationship is built on a foundation of trust. And once trust erodes, like for whatever reason it is, now Airbnb has to deal with it, obviously, in, this, in light of this. But whenever it erodes, people start doubting everything. And once you don't get back to somebody in a timely manner and they start wondering, well, are they going to get back to me? And what else aren't they going to do? in their promises of the service delivery. So, so Airbnb has done a lot to, to get to a point where they could get that valuation. I'd be glad to talk about that. So, to, so let's break that down. I mean, how, what are the elements that enable us to go from a place of, okay, this is stranger to stranger. I'm literally renting a room in somebody else's home in some cases. How do you design for trust? I mean, like you said, this is a very stark contrast to a situation that we would normally trust. Yeah, no, it's, it starts fundamentally by trying to create a human relationship somewhere in here. You know, the beginning of anything is is making a promise that you can deliver against. So if I think about business in general, business requires you to create value, right? And to be able to market that value to people who will find that value meaningful to them. So some of the ways you, you create trust is by knowing the value you create uh, and then authentically representing that value. No puffery, no exaggeration in your marketing, no effort to try to attract people who shouldn't be buying your product. Uh, into the web of profitability. Uh, once you know who you are, know who's the right person to get it, communicate it fairly, you are well on the road to trust, particularly if you can deliver it as promised. But how do you bridge that gap? Because you said once you've, you've got to communicate it accurately, the only way to know that is for someone to actually follow through on the transaction, right? So that, that first bridge, that bridge from do I give, because if you're going to reinvent any category, if you're going to influence any industry, turn it on its head, first of all, you're going to have to get people to trust that the new way of doing things is at least as good or better than the, than the past way of doing things. So how do you get them to take that first leap when they haven't even purchased yet? If we're taking the Airbnb model as an example, right? So the options that were available to people to book 
uh, you know, housing in someone's place were fairly limited. In time memorial, most of the time in the South in the United States, someone would be traveling and there'd be a sign, you know, room for let for the night. This is the alternative to the vacancy sign out in front of a hotel. And so if you were a wayward traveler and you saw that sign, you would approach the homeowner and and inquire about the availability of their space and then stay in their space. And so it was home sharing with reliance only on signage, right? Um, so then from there, there were a few, some other options. In the United States, we had vacation rental by owner, which was a very clunky, horrific website in 2008, which is when Airbnb makes its rise, a horrid uh, website and total lack of searchability. And if you did book on the site, everything was aligned in favor of the homeowner. And it was just a terrible experience if there was if you had to change bookings, for example. Um, so suffice it to say that the marketplace was ready for a disruptor to come in and say, we can broker relationships between buyers and sellers efficiently um, for that same marketplace. And that really was the epigenesis of the brand in, in 2007, 2008. So once someone's taken that first, that first initial leap, then obviously we need to get people coming back and back again, which Airbnb has done to an incredible level. Is there is the key there the rankings based system? It got me thinking about this recently. I actually stayed in a hotel um, here in Melbourne, and I showed up, and they had this piece of paper when I checked in, and it said, um, "Due to the rise in rankings websites and rankings models, we've decided to flip the tables, and we will be ranking you on your stay, and we will be posting you know different rankings and emailing them through to you." And Firstly, I laughed because I think that it was done tongue in cheek, but I was so, I mean, I'm usually pretty well behaved in a hotel room. There's no trashing hotel rooms in my history, but I, I noticed I was a good percentage more well behaved, putting everything back where I found it because that, you know, that good girl thing kicked in. Is, is that a key also that kind of level of transparency? Oh. Absolutely. So some of the other things they do to design for trust, that's one of them. Even before that, when I've booked on the site, let's say you're the host and I'm the guest and I've selected your property and I can do an instant booking. And so after I booked, you typically would be sending me a message that says, Joseph, you know, I'm glad you booked on the site. would love to know a little bit more about the purpose of your stay and who else is going to be joining you. would love to make this a positive experience for you. And that that inbound message from you on the app, um, it humanizes this. I'm no longer dealing with the front clerk at that hotel, uh, an amorphous entity that lacks all soul. Um, and so you have now personalized it and it's not me just saying, I'm going to be going to a room. I'm, I'm now being hosted by you and there's a person involved. Once I get past that, and, and they've spent lots of time designing the chat box for that interaction, by the way, they've optimized the size of that chat box so that, that it, it encourages just about the right amount of disclosure from me so we can build a relationship. It doesn't prompt for over-disclosure. There are a few prompt guides to get make sure that I share things that don't freak you out too much more, you know, purposeful uh, conversation. 
But once that happens, then we have the interaction and we, you know, we have the service moment. I am, I am judging you on your communication on whether or not there was value, whether or not the way you presented your property was in keeping with what I experienced, all of the things that would affect trust. Uh, and then you rate me as well. And it's a mutual disclosure. So I can't retaliate on you if you were to release your rating on me first and then I have a chance to go, well, if she thinks that of me, well, here's what I think of her. Um, we both reveal at the same time and the universe now is considering your property and future hosts are considering whether or not they want to honor the booking that I make with them. And if your property gets negative ratings consistently and you don't respond to Airbnb's efforts to help you in the domain of deficiency, then you're not going to be found when future guests search for you because the AI, the, you know, the artificial intelligence will assure algorithmically that you get buried in the search process. So I think those are ways you design for trust, right? Like create that mutual sharing, create opportunities for dialogue in advance of an interaction, prompt the dialogue space, and then make sure that people get mutual reveals that, that then drive searchability. You've, you've also said that belonging is at the center of Airbnb, which I just, I just think is such a beautiful word, I think. Uh, that doesn't get used often enough. Um, now you've said that belonging is a, is a differentiator. It's a it's a human need, and if hosted nothing else but create belonging in every instance, trust would automatically follow. But when you're, you know, when you're talking about a sense of belonging, that that's a huge key to influence at every level, at a, at a company level, and a membership models, um, political parties. I just think that that is a pillar of influence that is worthy of a lot more discussion. What's the, firstly, what do you mean by belonging? Let's start there. Well, first, Julie, you know, I invented the word and I get a quarter every time someone do you? uses it. Yeah. So All right. I'm glad. I'm keeping a tally right now. now. I'm, I'm, my kids will go to college. Um, so let, let's go back. You know, this belonging word has been in the vocabulary for a long time, but it doesn't get used enough in business. I'm completely in agreement with that. And one of the beginning places I, I went to, I got a PhD in clinical psychology. So back in the old days, and I was studying Abraham Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, in the context of my psychological pursuits. But most people have a, a basic understanding that Maslow tried to understand human needs. And he said that they were basically organized hierarchically, uh, wherein we have some basic needs and we have some mid-level needs and we have some pinnacle needs. And you know, generally speaking, the theory is that you need to get your basic needs under control um, to, to aspire to higher and higher level need acquisition. And there's been, you know, some empirical proof for that and some other, some other disparaging, you know, disagreeing data. But, but overall, people tend to agree that there are these sets of needs. And so belonging falls in the Meslovian model into a very mid-range set of needs. Um, you know, in an Airbnb world, the primary needs would be safety uh, and the security of a roof over your head. Um, the mid-level opportunity is to have people, when they interact with the business, not only feel like I got what I needed at a basic level, but I also got the opportunity to feel connected to other human beings, to not be alone in the universe, to, to be respected, 
to be welcomed, um, to feel as though this is a place where I am accepted and I belong, right? So if I am, you know, if I am LGBTQ in the deep south of the United States, if I am uh, in a a third world country where I don't speak the language, in any case, as a vulnerable traveler, I would want to feel that I can belong in this home that I am coming to. And so Airbnb really sold this messaging and has sold it at the core of their brand messaging. And a lot of credit goes to Chip Conley, who was one of the first um, individuals to connect Maslow to business. And his book, Peak, is just absolutely brilliant in his his application of as Maslowian theory to business. And so let's just let's translate that that word belonging. There you go. There should be a little buzzer every time I say the word. Um, let's just translate that into, you know, you, as you said, you're a clinical psychologist. If tomorrow you decided, right, I'm going to, I'm going to start, let's just say, a professional services firm, a financial advice firm. How would you start? Like, what are the, what are the core things that if I'm going to create a sense of belonging in this space? How would you go about doing it? Or is that too much of a, of a complex question? No, no, I, I think fundamentally, the question is, let's look at every single interaction point we envision having as a result of this relationship. So first and foremost, how are people going to arrive and come to know us and find us out? And when they do, how can we assure that their arrivals experience on their website lets them know that they belong on this site, that this site is perfect for someone like them, that they that their arrival at this site is something that we welcome and embrace. And in every other touch point, no matter what channel they come to us on, we want to make sure that above all else, that this human emotional need to be accepted as a member of a group is embraced and celebrated um, as a as a client. And I would want that for friends and coworkers and family. I would want them all to feel that in different settings. But for the new customer, uh, the new client, I guess, as they would say in that space, I would want to make sure that we are driving a sense of you, you belong as an accepted member of this community of customers or clients. What's the best? I mean, you interviewed hundreds, hundreds of of hosts, um, hundreds of guests in order to write this book. What's the best story or experience you had, or maybe you experienced yourself? There's so many. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. your favorite child of all the children. You have. Did you pick, um, we, we all have one. You know that we do. Yeah, no, no. I, I think, you know, a classic example is somebody who um, stays up to make sure their guests show up and make it because, you know, oftentimes they, this particular guest accommodates lots of international travelers. And so they stay up until that guest arrives. And it's more of the, the notion that I wanted to personally welcome you to this place, no matter what the hour was, someone actually gave a damn that you made it. Um, and so, you know, and then there are all kinds of ways to celebrate your arrival, you know, from welcome note, you know, signs welcoming you, um, you know, to people who have maps on their walls that say, put a pin from where you come, but the maps have no boundaries. So essentially you can see the 
physical geography of the map, but there are no nation boundaries or nation demarcations. So then the concept here is that no matter from whence you came, we want to know you put that pin on it, but we're, we're part of a universal traveling world. Um, and so we're boundaryless in the way we look at you. You, you had also said, you just reminded me of something that I read that at a macro level, I think hosting may be one of the most noble things that we can do. And you just reminded me of that, you know, the notion that wherever you come from, we're glad that you came is, you know, Airbnb as a, as a company, what role do you feel like it has to play in that nobility? First, let me just say you are an incredible host yourself, right? So as, as someone listens to you, the warmth of your voice, the, the sense of caring about the listener and the host uh, and the guest, um, if people knew how much work you put in to prepping your guests for your show, how many materials you've provided for them to make sure that they can empathize with who your audience is, uh, all of that stuff is the work of being a great host. And the message I would say is we're all hosting all of the time. Getting to specifics of your question, which is kind of how does Airbnb play in the world of hosting? I think they they elevate hosting. They suggest that if I am a host, I am focused on the needs of my guest by nature of that dynamic. And the very fact that I am not focused on myself, but place the needs of the guest as the primary thing that is incredibly noble in a world of unbelievable selfishness, right? And unbelievable division where, you know, if you've ever been to a chamber of commerce meeting, oftentimes what you see is everybody is selling and no one is buying, right? Like everybody's talking and no one's listening. Um, and I think hosting is the noble art of listening and observing to understand, to connect, to empathize and to serve. Now, here's the cool thing. When you do that, you are served in the process. But if you obsess about yourself and, you know, all that you want to achieve in your business and only think about it from your side of the interaction and aren't hosting people, uh, you can make money for a short period of time, but it's not sustainable. It just it just hit me when I when I read that that quote from you, you know, that a lot of the time we spend our time reluctantly tolerating, you know, we. We reluctantly tolerate our customers sometimes. We reluctantly tolerate our coworkers. We reluctantly tolerate, if you go macro, the people that come and live in our nation from other nations or from other communities. And that, that mindset shift into, into hosting. Actually, my husband and I, we, went, we traveled India for a while before we had kids. And I wanted to stay in a family home in India. This is way before Airbnb. And I did some research and I found this family um, who agreed to have us come and stay with them. And his one condition, the, the father who, who kind of ran this home, his one condition was that anyone that stays in his home has to have dinner with them of an evening and talk to his two daughters about where they came from. And his entire intention was to host you, but also to elevate his family's understanding of the world, his, his family's perspective on the planet, of the people who exist that are different to them. And that meal has to be one of the most beautiful meals of my life. And it just, it, it really hit me that if you can flip that mindset from where am I reluctantly tolerating right now from, you know, business through to personal, through to na national, 
And how can I flip my mindset into hosting? That one flip has the potential to change everything. Absolutely. And you know, I think in any moment, you could be reluctantly tolerating me as your guest, right? So, and I, and I could understand why that would be. But um, I, I mean, I think if you're going to try to create any positive for yourself, um, you're not going to get it by staying in that posture, right? I mean, the likelihood of anything good coming of it is going downhill pretty quickly. Um, so I think that, that this setup from this individual in your experience was from the onset saying, I'm going to ins- assume that everyone who visits with me has something to contribute to the development of my children. Um, And I find that to be such a lovely assumption, right? Like I assume every customer that I am given the opportunity to serve has a potential benefit to me, not just at a financial level, but for my learning about how to make my business better. I, I was writing something on a blog the other day about, you know, the good thing about chronic complainers in a business is they're really good at knowing what to complain about. Right. So we can tune them out as chronic complainers or we can go. These people are almost experts at complaints. You know, they, they can find the problem when everybody else, you know, finds the, the wonderfulness of it. So as much as I would like to just tolerate them, maybe they're a gift because they're like expert, you know, expert observers of the broken. I'm going, to, I'm going to flip into, I'm going to flip all over the place, but I'm going to flip into another place. And I want to go back to 2016, where I know that Airbnb made a pivotal decision about reinventing the way that they came to market. And the crux of that decision was to put experiences and stories at the heart of everything that they do. Why was that? I mean, I know you've talked about it before. Why was that such an influential decision for them to make? Oh, because, I mean, the the way to connect with people is through story. I mean, one of the most beautiful truths of all time is that we are storytellers and we are totally sold on a good story. So they understood that otherwise travel becomes very transactional. They're also very much about a platform. Really, let's get down to it. Airbnb itself is nothing more than a website that enables people to host their properties and host their, you know, their, their, or seek their, their properties for, for stay. So how does Airbnb infuse soul into this whole enterprise? How do they humanize it? And so what they do is they focus on the story. They also realize that in addition to accommodations, they could facilitate people's interactions with one another and those interactions are really a a great way to create memories. And if you look at millennials in particular, they seem to find more value in experiences than things. And there's plenty of empirical data to say that experiences encode more to emotion than do objects you purchase. Now we think, well, if you buy a Ferrari, you know, it's emotionally extension of your identity. Um, But, that is true. That, that is true for a period of time. And there's a great spike of that upon purchase. But over time, experiences have more lasting sense of identity. So the story you told about the dinner you had is more likely to be embedded into your sense of self than is the product you bought yesterday. So all of this is kind of like super psychological, potentially babble, but it ultimately means that if you want to know how people identify themselves, it's through the stories they tell based on the experiences they have 
to a far greater degree than the things they own. So essentially facilitating people to be able to tell their stories of, of the places that they live, of the reasons that they love it, the, the restaurant that they went to down an alleyway that no one might potentially find. And the essence of that is saying, you know, this is for people like me. If you are like me and you love the same things that I do or you are of the same demographic or life stage that I am, you will love this too. Absolutely. And where you and I may both have an iPhone, for goodness sakes, that does not really, you know, it's pretty hard to, here, let me tweet to you that I have an iPhone, right? Like, that's not all that exciting. Um, what is exciting is when I tweet to you about that one one-off experience that seems so unique, so precious, so something that I think would be craveable for you. Um, that's That's the stuff of life. Like, give me a story to tell. And I think that I tell this about brands all the time. Like, what do you want people to say about you when you're not around? What do you want them to say about the experience they had, about how they left feeling, about what they saw, felt, thought, did as it related to you? What is that story you want them to tell um, that would create craveability for the people who hear it? I also think there's, there's something in there that is highly overlooked from a product design point of view. You know, I've, I keep looking at the, I have no intention of starting a vitamin company. However, if I did, I think that that's one of those categories where this kind of storytelling could just reinvent everything. I mean, you go, you go to a pharmacy and there is just aisles and aisles and aisles of vitamin. And on the front of every single vitamin packet, it says, I don't know, B12, CoQ10. Now I'm not a pharmacist. I don't know what any of that means and I don't know what I need or what combination of what things I need at what time. But if you put a product up there and you just called it, I'm going to make it up, zombie mum. <laughs> Are you a mum? Do you feel like a zombie right now? This, <laughs> this is the product for you. We've combined everything for this particular person and we're going to tell a story about that person's life, where they find themselves, how they found themselves so that I can go, that's for me, pick it up, leave the store. You are worrying me that you could create zombie moms so much out of thin air. That's like a little, <laughs> you know, it seems like a projection of some odd sort. Um, it's basically I just a mom that I hasn't slept right. for a really long time. Who, yeah. Who cares about B12, right? Like that's, that's that complexity. If we went, we're almost coming somewhat full circle, right? Like that's too wonky scientific, but the accessibility is my shared human condition that causes me to see this, particularly through stories of others who've, you know, the, the backstory of transformation from once being a zombie mom to being whatever the inverse of that is, thanks to this product and all those storytellers who share that, that uh, transformational journey. And to tie back to Airbnb, you know, something that they do beautifully that, you know, they have, they have a story category, I think, called Zen, Zen travelers and ultimate triathletes so if you want to travel as a zen travel you want to travel as a triathlete you can go and zone in on that particular story track and find places that would be well suited to you let's move let's let's keep moving away from zombies who knew that we could get there um you talk a lot about enlightened hospitality and i think that's another you know really influential thought can you just dive into what you mean by that yeah. So like, I think all things, um, in the world have an element of being cared for and being cared about. 
So to be cared for means you do all the operational things necessary to deliver care. So in hospitality, to be cared for means that I have done all the operational things to make sure that I have your room prepared for you, um, that we are ready for you, that it's clean, that I have communicated with you, understand your needs, states, all of that. Um, so that's caring for. And that is the, the foundation of hospitality is creating a space for you. Um, and in my case, and what I would suggest a belonging space for you, but then to care about you means that I am authentically concerned that you can't put this stuff on about your overall need state beyond the operational. Uh, where are you going next? What else might you be needing beyond the obvious room and board? What have I observed about you with regard to your preferences? And how can I exceed your expectations, particularly in the area of unstated needs? And I think this is really where, you know, if you want to talk about kind of reinventing yourself in a category, most of the really great reinvention brands that I'm aware of have spent a lot of time um, really understanding the unmet needs and wants of a shopper group. They've sized those opportunities up uh, and they've built solutions that enable them to sell these unstated, unmet wants, needs and desires of the consumers that they shop. So I think enlightened uh, hospitality lends itself to category reinvention. Did, when you say un, you know, unmet or, un, or unstated needs, as a, as a CEO, I think it's very easy, or in anyone who runs a business, it's, it's very easy to sit there and go, what? if they're unstated, how do I find them? You know, if, if, if nobody can explain to me what they are and nobody can articulate them, how do I find them? Is it, is it as simple as asking? Taking the 20% of customers that are responsible for 80% of your revenue, sitting them down and asking, is that, is that the way forward? That's a very good way. And it's also observing their behavior in addition. So there's lots of ways to get input about what are the needs of people. And some of them are to ask them. And if, you know, sometimes you have to ask three questions because they'll tell you the first answer and then you go, well, tell me more about that. And why do you that? Tell me. And why, why again, you know, that three why sort of cadence where you kind of peeling deeper and deeper to see if you can't find some more source material. So I do think listening is important. I think observing though behaviors, let me, let me really quite simply, I was working for the Ritz Carlton hotel company in 2008. We were trying to determine whether or not the brand could pivot in accord with what we thought was a changing consumer. So in the old days, most of the people who go to a Ritz Carlton were relatively affluent. They were looking more for their country club away from home. They didn't want any surprises. They wanted what they had seen everywhere else, you know, men in smoking jackets next to the swimming pool, lots of mahogany. Um, and so we were contemplating, could we possibly, this is how insane it is, could we possibly serve beer in a bottle at a Ritz-Carlton. That's 2008, because the refined elevated experience is one where we serve people beer in glasses. We would never leave a bottle ab about. Um, and so that was the contemplation. Now, at the same time, in 2008, Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia were trying to make rent on their apartment in, in San Francisco, and they're thinking about blowing up three air mattresses at $80 US a night uh, and giving people uncooked Pop-Tarts in the morning as the breakfast offering of the air bed and breakfast uh, journey. Well, fast forward you know, through all of that, what really Brian and Joe saw 
was an unstated need for people to do two things. They didn't want sameness in travel. They wanted to travel local. They wanted to get off the grid. They didn't want the 350 square foot room that they had in the last town that they were in. People were wanting more of a unique set of experiences that they could tweet about, that they could share with their friends, that made them different, not the same as everybody else who stayed in a similar place the night before. So, I mean, I think that that's what they were doing. They were paying attention to the amount of mobile purchasing that was going on and the rise of mobile behavior. And they caught that unstated need. So they create a marketplace where people can travel local, have access to getting those places through a mobile interface. Voila. And then let's throw one other need states that's kind of underrepresented. You know, this new generation of people who want to repurpose things and not have to have everything new. You know, in my day, you had to buy, you know, a new prom dress if you were going to the, the senior prom. Nowadays, people are going online and buying you know, somebody else's, you know, renting somebody else's prom dress or leasing somebody else's previously purchased prom dress. And, and the Airbnb phenomenon is let's just take advantage of somebody's existing space in a room so the world doesn't have to go out and, you know, kill lots of trees in order to build another hotel across from the other one. So I think all of those factors were observations about the way people were changing their use patterns for for purchasing for mobile connectivity and for a desire to not be same like everyone else. Isn't that amazing though? You know, you're sat with a hotel chain discussing whether bottles are too lowbrow and those guys are, are offering uncooked Pop-Tarts and becoming the next unicorn of the industry. Does that, does that tie into, again, you've talked about intentionally decreasing puffery. Is it... Does that tie into that, that we're, we're moving away from, you know, the idea of a perfect brand, of a homogenous experience towards something that feels like a unique experience, something that feels real? Look at this podcast, like in a whole podcasting phenomena. You know, I did. I love the fact that great. you're tying away from perfection to this podcast. That's <laughs> no, exactly. Isn't this the ultimate example of non, no, um, you know, I, I did talk radio for decades and we were very precise and we were very enunciated and it was extremely not real and it was overproduced. Um, and, you know, that was the market for a long time. But now people want the most authentic that they can. They they want us to trip over our words occasionally and not sound robotically scripted in the way we share information in audio form. So I, I think, yeah, I, mean, I really do think the world has moved to just be real with me. If I'm not your customer, you know, don't try to sell me on you. I'm tired of that crap, right? Um, and if I am your customer, let me choose by virtue of you being real. Uh, and let me figure out if that, if there's a connection or not. So that's definitely tied in. And, and one of the things that Airbnb is, you know, Airbnb encourages hosts to do is to actually in their house rules and in the interaction style of the, the, the host, which is part of the listing to actually tell people things that might make this not the right place for them. So I talked to a host, for example, who doesn't let anyone cook meat in her kitchen. 
So if you want to stay in her place, it's very clear you will never be allowed to cook meat in her kitchen. It's not acceptable in her home to have anyone ever do that. So for me, that would probably not be the place I'd want to stay. We cite in the book all kinds of listings like, you know, the natives in the deep bush where you're going to be going sometimes have rituals laid in, you know, I mean, like, okay, you know, if you're into that, book it, right? Uh, the road is not passable nine months of the year, okay? I don't mind using snowshoes, right? So that's critical, I think, today to the market. It's it's funny, you're just talking about podcasting. You've just hit upon, there's a couple of podcasts that I love and they give you the option just to tie back into that perfection question, they give you the option of listening to the full unedited version or the edited version. <laughs> and I always listen, always, I always listen to the full unedited version. And it literally has them eating packets of crisps, doing their sound checks, the whole thing. But there is something about listening to an unedited version where I feel a part of that total experience. And yet, and this is the important point, and yet, when it comes to producing this podcast, and I think that every CEO and anyone that's ever run a project would relate to this, when it comes to my own creation, I want it to be perfect. I prefer imperfection, but for some reason, when it applies to me, I will not, you know, no, we, we need to edit that out. If he, if he sneezes, edit it out. So I think that there's a need there to recognize that that is what we want, that that is what we love, this is what we are, we are being pulled towards and actually let it go enough to be able to apply it to our own worlds, to our own businesses, to our own projects. I don't know what the key to that yeah. is. If anyone knows, just shoot me a note. <laughs> yeah, and it is a balance, right? Like you don't want to do something that embarrasses your family or something. I mean, I think there is that kind of balance. And But but I think we overproduce our, you know, we, we over erase our imperfections uh, at a cost of not being accessible. Well, I'm going to swap, swap lanes. I want to talk about empowerment. Now, you, you've talked about you know, one of the pillars of Airbnb that makes it the, the behemoth that it has become is empowerment. The empowerment to create my own experience, the empowerment to turn an, my assets, such as my home, into a source of income. And that got me, it got me thinking. I was like, well, that's, you know, that's all very well and good empowerment. But anyone that's ever tried to do anything knows that the fastest way to get nothing done and to get nowhere is to give people too many options. Is there, is there a line there? Like in studying Airbnb, is there a line where you're empowered to create your own experience, but you're not drowned out by the millions of options that are out there? Oh my gosh. Yes. So, um, in fact, we, you know, the, the over amount of choice paralyzes people in being able to make decisions and, you know, the automobile can, you can create everything about your own automobile if you want to build it from scratch. Right. But, but no auto manufacturer does that much anymore. The reality is they tend to give you three or four buying options, you know, the kind of the good, better, best mindset of, of options. When it comes to Airbnb, the AI is working on both sides of the ledger. So as I log into my account, it's already taking into consideration what to present to me based on my past use patterns. Now I can, in very simple order, be able to make a few pivots and get to things other than my normal use, but it's already trying to anticipate that about me. Um, so I, I think one of the beauties of this is the ability for, you know, for people to not have to overthink, but be still provided ample options within their own preferences. 
Um, I, I think for me, the empowerment goes way beyond that, though. And it's, you know, this is, they have an absolute economic empowerment agenda going on at Airbnb. And philosophically, they believe in democratizing financial opportunities. Uh, so the goal would be to assure that in the United States, in markets which are minority dominant, that those markets have an opportunity to leverage the one asset that might create some revenue for them, which is their home. Um, and they are hellbent on growing in those areas. Have you heard of, and this is just more out of curiosity, have you, have you heard of NIDO? No, I'm not. N-double-I-D-O. I came across it recently. It's basically, it's a, it seems to be another revenue stream for Airbnb. It's a development company. They build... Oh, um, oh, 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 I do. Yes. yes. In fact, I do. Yes. Go ahead. Um, for anyone that's listening, they, they basically, they develop apartment blocks, but what they do is powered by Airbnb. So they use the data that Airbnb collects as to what people are looking for, what they want, what they're asking for, how long they stay for, their demographics, their needs, everything. And then... They use that data to power this development company and they build apartment complexes. So if you want to live somewhere that you can Airbnb out frequently or you want to invest in an apartment and use it as a source of income, then and by putting it on Airbnb, then this is what you would buy. The crux of it being that Airbnb have found a way to monetize what they do best, which is understand consumer needs. And I just thought that was that was a fascinating um segue for them a fascinating new source of income is there do you see that happening more and more companies are using the data that they have and actually taking that cross-purpose oh uh, yes i think that you know there are lots of ways to create value and one is to understand people and then sell that understanding to others it's like you know, track people to this podcast, create an audience and sell advertising to people for the large audience that you create. I mean, there are many revenue streams here. And I think, you know, there is such a cottage. There's so many cottage industries that have grown up around Airbnb. There are companies that are creating access to Airbnb. You know, uh, there are people who are monitoring sound in these spaces um, and alerting the property manager when guests become unduly loud um there you know there's all of these turnkey operations where you don't have to manage any of the readying your your property for the next guest so tons of um cottage industries get developed from either uh, the access to these spaces or the understanding of the traveler do you have any any thoughts on how that then pivots into that first question that we started with which is trust yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the problems that, you know, Airbnb is struggling with and I, I think will probably continue to struggle with is are they are they really the the local experience anymore? Is it a, a mom and pop home host community or is it commercial real estate? And are they going to get into a place where they're going to be opening hotels uh, because that's a brand extension? And now you start to, you know, if I'm a home host, do I trust the brand is going to be supporting my value proposition or are they going to be promoting these other value propositions as a priority for their revenue stream? So, you know, I, I think you can leverage trust for the good and sometimes you can squander trust if you over overextend your brand reach to too many adjacencies. You see it all the time, like 
in a, you know, I have many, I have insurance clients, insurance companies, large insurance companies in the United States where they have really relied on distributing their products through these local agents. Uh, and now they're going online and selling directly to the consumer base. And so all these agents that said, wait, you used to love me so much and I was your distribution arm and I serviced your clients and now you're, you're undercutting me with competitive pricing on the web that, and so I think trust is such an interesting issue, right? Uh, from a consumer perspective, maybe I want the ability to have a company that has cr created all these agents over time and the relationships they foster serve me in a direct channel where I can get a better pricing structure. Uh, and I trust them because they've had those agents all those years, but the agents don't necessarily feel they can trust the brand when there's a, a, a grab for market share in that repositioning. I can think of, of two or three industries right now that are going through exactly that, exactly that, where trust belonged on a human-human relationship. Now there's a direct-to-market route via digital channels. And how do we as a brand do that? Do we go, do we take that market share, which is just there and available, which a disruptor is going to take any time now, which is the direct-to-consumer online? But then I cut out this entire half of my workforce that I've had for for years, either in agents, franchisees, whatever it looks like, what's their role now and, and am I undercutting them and how do we do it? And I, I don't necessarily, I mean, can you think of any examples of those that are doing it well at the moment? I, I struggle to find them. I think, uh, you know, the best of them probably figure out ways to somehow revert business back. You know, a lot of it in the U.S. is like, how do we get somebody to buy directly from us online, but then leverage our network out there for service contracts or something like that? Um, yeah, I, I don't really see anybody doing it particularly well right now, but it's the challenge because what are you going to do? Let the market can be cannibalized by online you know, competitors or are you trying to find a position that protects it for everyone? Yeah, I think the, the the brand or the entity that figures that out first is probably going to be leading the next charge. Okay, well, final question. Final question for you because I know you've had a, a massive day and, and I'm sure you're eager to, to get home and see your family. If I was a CEO right now or an entrepreneur or anyone looking to run an, an organization and I know that I have to reinvent you know, I know that the next Airbnb of my industry is coming. I mean, it's probably lapping at my feet right now. What what should I focus on first? Because it's kind of overwhelming, right? Like I have this blank piece of paper. I don't know which piece of efficiency or belonging or experience I should focus on. Where do, where would you start? Well, I would I would hire you. I mean, seriously, I'm not, I'm not, being, you know, I only, I'm only open to vitamin companies at the moment. Cheese for you. I mean, zombie you know, you mom is my about, only oh, passion. No, 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 do please do not hire you to create the zombie mom solution. That would not be good. But I think, you know, if you look at who you are and what you do, I mean, you're helping brands identify that space, right? That space that they own. And to do that takes a lot of change management. It takes a lot of consumer understanding. It, it takes a, an understanding not only of the consumers in front of you and the direct inquiry of them, but it takes an understanding of the macro trends that are affecting consumers. I think you want to hire someone to help you on this journey um, because one of the problems we often get too close to our businesses, we, we care so much about 
our brand equity that we're very protective and we don't take we don't do what we need to do to reach far enough. Uh, oftentimes we're we're underwhelmingly uh, we're underwhelmingly ambitious. It's, I think that's a, a brilliant point to end on. I was actually interviewing a physicist recently, and he was talking about why NASA is no longer leading the charge when it comes to innovative thinking. And it should because it has the, you know, the budgets, the brains. It doesn't have to run at a profit. There's no reason why it shouldn't be the powerhouse that it used to be. And, and he was saying that the reason is because there's no outside agitation. You know, most companies have outside agitators forcing them forwards. And I think that's the value, right, of bringing in different perspectives, bringing in agitators from the outside and letting them create enough friction so that new ideas come through. Yeah, I love when somebody says, and why do we do that again? And then the answer is almost always because that's the way we've always done it. And we want to stay stuck in mediocrity and in the history. Yeah, if you want to go forward, create your own competition, literally start a company to put you out of business and watch what they do. Oh, uh, amen. And, you know, I was always grateful when back in the days of the Ritz-Carlton that there was the Four Seasons, right? It made Ritz-Carlton better. And I think unless you have an already competitive agitator in the marketplace, I love the notion of creating your own ideational lab that is looking for ways to make you irrelevant or disrupt you to a point you could not survive. And frequently from an ideational exercise with brands, I will say, you know, let's imagine whatever it is that's making you successful today is regulated out of existence and you have to succeed in spite of it. Now what are you going to do? Right. Like, let's handicap you and let's start thinking of ways to, to come up with another approach. Joe, I love that question. I'm, I'm literally going to end the episode on that question. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this book. I mean, this is one book at the at the, you know, that has come after many books of, of insights of you basically studying what works. So appreciate your time and your ideas. And hopefully we'll get to catch up again soon. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.